Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you guys are here as we're in our second week of our new series entitled Imperfect People. So uh, we, uh, we wanted to, we talked last week about Abraham and his life, and we talked about lies and truths. Uh, what's a lie? What's a truth? If, we, if it's a lie, call it a lie. If it's a truth, call it a truth. And then we uh, discussed about his life and how we learned of the importance that as we look at the Old Testament and we look at the patriarch and we look at prophets and we look at people who followed God, we recognize one thing. They were imperfect. But yet God was willing to use them even through their imperfections. And so what we must keep in mind as New Testament believers, as the church age, that we too have to do the same. We have to recognize that God, is he demanding perfection from us or is he demanding um, something else or is he just wanting a relationship with his people? And some of the things that we have to understand is that we live in a Western American society that perfection is something that we, we often lift up. We make it uh, a setting where it's so high that at times it's above God's perfection. The expectations that we have for our own selves are overwhelming. And I find that what happens is that when one becomes perfect or desiring to be perfect, they try to control their own lives. And when they try to control their own lives, they become what I would ask the question and, and entitle this sermon as, are you a control freak? Because sometimes what happens is we don't, that's such a statement that says, wow, that's a hard statement to even imagine. Can I even think of myself as a control freak? Well, maybe you're not. But it's always good to ask that question because the reason why I say it is because we all have in some capacity controlling issues. I mean, we like to control things because it's in our hands. Still today, the safest way to travel is an airplane. But why are people, most people afraid to fly? Why are people just willing to grab their keys, get into a car and drive and find that to be safer than flying in a plane? It's because we have our hands on the wheel, and we like to be in control. And even though it's, un, it's truly unsafe, we get into our cars daily. It's a routine. And in every way of, in our lives, we have these areas in our lives where we control. We control routine. We like routine. We're creatures of routine. And anyone who changes that, anyone in our lives, it begins to create a sense of, uh-oh, um, I'm going to get angry if someone doesn't stop changing what I like. Uh, if I'm in my house, and, if, and my wife doesn't do this, but if she were to misplace my coffee or put it somewhere else, and when I'm waking up in the morning, I just need my coffee. And when I go to get my coffee, it's not where I need it. You know, not that I would get upset, but someone can easily get upset. And so it's important to understand that as we think about this, what is, you know, what does it mean? What are some control issues that we have in our lives? And so as I, as I think about that, we just went through 21 days of prayer and fasting. And, you know, I don't know about you, but to some of you that have taken advantage of that and spent some time with the Lord and got close with him and taken the opportunity not only to, you know, get away from, you know, maybe a, a social media or TV or whatever that kind of takes control of your, you know, takes more or less your time, that sometimes um, it could be food. And I don't know about you, but um, 
One of the things that I enjoy more than anything in this world is eating. I've been brought, brought up that way. Um, I had a mom who would fill my plate up with spaghetti, one plate, big plate, and then after I'm done, you wanted some more, and then I would eat some more, and then the third plate, and then she would feel offended if I didn't eat enough. Well, now when I see people who don't have food, I feel bad. It's been ingrained in me, but I found a video that I thought you'd think it was cute because sometimes if you're hungry and you really want to eat, you might feel like you're out of control. So I thought I would just kind of share this video with you. Two days without a tasty treat to eat, and I have to sit up here while they're having a happy birthday jelly stone party. And they have donuts. Donuts! Yogi, I'm going. Hey, wait, don't do it, Yogi. You promised Mr. Ranger. You're right. I'm losing control, boo-boo. I don't know who's steering the ship. Here. I want you to handcuff me to this tree and not unlock it no matter what I say. Okay, Yogi. Okay, unlock me. Huh? It was a bad idea. Unlock me! Unlock me! Okay, here you go. <laughs> well, that was Joya uh, trying to hold me back from eating a donut. Um, unfortunately, that just seems to, I don't know if that's going on in your mind, but it sure does for me when I'm sitting around and I'm smelling something, I lose control. I just need to eat something. Um, but when we think about it in all seriousness as we lighten it up a little bit, you know, leading psychologists have said, and experts as well, state that there are many control seekers. Um, many could be obsessive compulsive. Uh, there's, there's a disorder that some can just be angry, um, overt, and passive-aggressive. You ever deal with someone like that? Have you ever, you know, it's possible. I mean, this could relate to any one of us. Maybe it's phobic or even a mood disorder. Whatever the case, control is involved in every bit of our lives. In fact, um, they have identified, the experts and psychologists have identified signs for what they labeled as control freaks. This is their perspective. And so I wanted to state it more like in a question. <clears throat> do, you, <clears throat> do you need to correct someone when they are wrong? Grammar, spelling, pronunciation, or certain facts? Just a question. Do you need to have the last word in an argument or discussion? If you're Italian, yes, you have a problem with that. If it's a spousal, it's a spousal argument or a debate with your child or a debate about your child, um, that's one, they say. Do you have a difficult time admitting you're wrong? I mean, that could be any one of us. I mean, we, I think we all have a difficult time admitting that we're wrong in some, in some cases. Do you find yourself judging and criticizing people often? Something else they brought up. Do you find yourself driving in rage? You're, you know, one of those, you know, just constantly saying someone's in your way. They're the, they're the ones that are wrong. Not you. you are, they're the ones that are wrong. Of course, another thing that came up too often that could be mentioned is that refuse to delegate. 
You always feel like you have to do everything. You don't want to delegate anything. Um, everything has to be on your schedule. So when you go to set up a schedule with someone, you're like, it's got to be set up the way to fit your schedule. It's never about, hey, what can we do to fit your schedule? What makes it easier for you? A perfectionist, straight out perfectionist, they said. Just, and we all have perfectionistic areas in our lives, but a straight out perfectionist. And judging others often, that was another one. Here's another one that they said, um, I, I want to read it to you. Another psychologist said, while there might be a lot of other reasons why one can be controlling, you know, one might do it because it makes the person feel good. It says, control feels good because it stimulates dopamine. Your brain is designed to reward you with the good feeling of dopamine when you get a step closer to something that meets your needs. The problem is that a bad feel, feeling, cortisol, is released when your expectations are disappointed. Cortisol makes you feel like your survival is threatened, even when you're safe. Because its job is to alert each one of us, each anyone, when one is gone off course. You know, one can avoid the bad feeling by letting go of this expectation. But then, of course, one doesn't get the dopamine, and then one doesn't step doesn't doesn't want to step forward meeting one's needs. And so it's important to understand, this is just a psychologist has said, and I was just interested when I read that, I was like, wow, I've never seen it that way, never thought of it that way. That's truly medical and, and also psychological, so of interest to understand that. Now, before you start criticizing me for bringing this up, this subject up, each one of us struggle with some sense of wanting control. We all struggle with that. We can't deny that. I mean, believe me, we're all guilty of it. However, instead of denying the possibility or tendency of wanting control, how should we respond? Should we admit um, God is working on us? Or are we possibly saying right now to ourselves, I don't struggle with any of those areas. By making this statement, you are claiming you're right, and these experts are wrong. <laughs> so I guess that's one of the things. You know, so again, I don't think we can get away from it. I think in every situation, in some, if you have a passion for something, you have something that you enjoy, you're going to want to control it in some manner. Maybe not to the level of a control freak, but each one of us can struggle with that. Now, I can tell you that I remember of a control freak that watching the movie Meet the Parents or Meet the Fockers. How many of you know Jack Burns? Jack Burns is the prototypical control freak. It was the funniest movie, um, Meeting the Parents, because obviously Ben Stiller, who was playing the part of the son um, would, and trying to, trying to marry the daughter, he just wouldn't allow for it. And not only was he just a control freak in nature, but just in life, he was also a control freak with trying to make sure he'd find the right man for his daughter. And it just seemed like no, no man can meet that need. No man could fill that spot unless that man submits totally to everything he wants. And that's just that, I don't know if that person exists today. <laughs> I mean, I know it's the movies and it's film, but, um, but each each particular, when you see a film and, you, and we laugh about it, we, we make light of it. But in some cases, it can be serious. Because in any kind of family situation, in any marriage, in any workplace, and church-related, anything, anything that re relates to being with people, 
sometimes it can come to a place where it's overwhelming and it can consume us. And so thinking about it with control, when we don't have control, sometimes we react, but we react in different ways. And one could be anger. We can just lash out in anger. We can react. And as we think about another character in the Old Testament, we have to think about, we talked about Abraham last week. This week we want to talk about Moses. And has he ever lost control? Has he ever lost his mind for just a moment? Has he gotten angry? Um, I think if you know the Old Testament, you know the life of Moses, we know that answer. We see it well. So I want you to just turn with me to Exodus chapter 2 as we see an episode, a narrative that's developed. Now, we have to understand we see chapter 2, we, we see that we know that Moses is the author and he's writing truly about himself. But what we see in chapter 2 is that we see that he writes from, and this is even in the, in the background of Hebrew writing and Jewish writing, is that you go from, he goes from 4 years old to 40 years old in a matter of two verses. And then, and then you see in Jesus, and also in the New Testament, the disciples do the same thing, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, they, and, and John in the Gospels, but the disciples with Matthew and Mark, they, were, they, were, they wrote quickly from just Jesus being born to he became an adult. And then he started his ministry on earth for three years. And so we see this setting, and when we understand the background, we see that now he went from being a child to verse 11, that he's coming at a place now where Moses is confronted with something. And, and we have to understand, too, as, as we look at chapter 2 of Exodus, there is also a backdrop of Acts 7 where Stephen makes mention of this. He talks about in Acts 7, verse 23, when he, he mentions that Moses is 40 years old. And, he, and, he, and when you look at this particular verse, even in verse 11, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, as you have to understand when he says, it says there to his people, he's writing with the episode, the narrative already happened. So he's writing with that perspective that it's possible that when he was walking around, that all of a sudden he saw the Hebrews as his own people. He grew up in Egypt in a culture where beating Hebrews, beating those who were slave labor and servants was a common thing. It wasn't uncommon, not right, totally, absolutely horrible, but yet it was common for the Egyptians to do this. And Moses was seeing this for years, but all of a sudden in this narrative, he's identifying that he's having a problem with it because he, he identifies the Hebrews as his people. And so when you're looking at, in, in part of chapter uh, 7 in Acts, Stephen, Luke is writing from a Stephen's perspective where they bring light to it that's a little bit different than what would you would see in Exodus because they bring light, a positive light on it in Acts 7 identifying him as a deliverer, and also with being the deliverer, he's defending his people. But yet in Exodus, I don't know if we can see it that way totally, because right now he's still in Egypt at this point in verse 11. So it's important for us to see this, because what we understand too, and we know in this narrative, is that he murdered the Egyptian. We can't lighten that up. He killed an Egyptian. And yet some scholars have downplayed this violent act of murder because he defended an oppressed Hebrew. 
So I asked the question, is it okay to murder someone in this situation? Did he not have the authority to tell the Egyptian to stop beating on the Israelite? We know that Moses could have, but all of a sudden we understand that Moses took control. And that's what we want. So if you look at your, as you're looking at your, um, your outlines here, it says when Moses was in control. Now when we understand the difference here is that Moses in his life right now was in control. What do we learn from it? What are we seeing in this narrative right here? Well, one is this. He took matters into his own hands. What does that mean? What does it mean to take matters into one's own hands? Why did he do this? <clears throat> he reacted and got very angry, and he felt the need to respond violently. There's no downplaying this sin. I mean, this is sin. I mean, we see it very clearly. And so as we look at this narrative from verse 11 into 12, it says he looked this way and that, and then seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. And then he goes so far as that he hid him in the sand. Lots of sand there. He hid them. Um, I call that a mob hit. I mean, what you do is that you go, you knock the guy out, and you hide him. You put him in the trunk. And then you say, yo, Vinny, make sure you lock the, you know, the trunk down. This is back in the day when there was a key there, and a key, key hole there. And, and you, you, you lock him out, and you remove him, you hide him. Now, remove his social security card. He's done. He doesn't exist anymore. Forget about it. Who knew? So all of a sudden, it's like you hear a mob hit here. It's a mob hit. But how can you lighten that up, Eddie? I mean, Moses took matters into his own hands. He didn't like what he saw. He got angry overwhelmingly violent, and killed the Egyptian. How come he didn't do it sooner? He's 40 years old. Something overcame him. And I think there is a pattern of demonstrating anger in even his life, of being a reactor. We'll see it again in another passage for a minute. But the need to be in control. See, I understand if Moses went back to Pharaoh and suggested to stop mistreating the Egyptian workers... He would have been ridiculed. Yet even if he couldn't stop it by going to Pharaoh, doesn't give it the right for him to kill someone violently. So we, I think we can come in an agreement because some scholars have said they've lightened this up a bit. But there's a, there's a few other scholars that are saying, you can't lighten this up. This is, this is killing someone. This is murder. Well, if you look with me just for a moment before we go back even to Exodus, look with me to Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. Because, again, Numbers chapter 27 through 12 is highlighting that the people were complaining. They needed water. Uh, they're in Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. They're there for the first month. Uh, Miriam is shortly after this is going to die. Four months ahead is going to be also Aaron. And he's going to be passing away. But they're in the land in the area. They're running, they're running towards the land. And here they're complaining they don't have water. So the Lord commands Moses. It says here in verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation. You and Aaron and your brother your Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels. I mean, he just yells at him, here now, you rebels. He gets angry. 
Shall we bring water for, for you out of this rock? Like, do you really deserve it after all your complaining? I don't think you deserve it, but you know what, you rebels? And so what does he do? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Wow. So he lost his control and he lost his mind and got angry. He reacted. And God disciplined him. God disciplined him to where he could not bring the people into the promised land. He was the leader. He was the judge. God appointed him to take these people into the promised land. And he lost his mind for just a moment, got angry at the people, called them a rebel, and then he became a rebel. So he became a rebel with a cause. And what he did is he said, you know what? I'm just going to strike this rock because I'm angry. So was he right to do so? No, he disobeyed God. He was angry toward God more than he was angry toward the people. He was angry toward God because God wasn't disciplining them. He was angry toward God because, like, God, they don't deserve the water. They're mistreating you. They're just rebelling against you and disobeying you. And then he reacts and does the same thing. See what anger does? When we want to be in control and we lose control, we then disobey and we get angry. And when we get angry, we think we have a right to be angry. And when we have a right to be angry, we try to control people with our anger. And when we try to control people with our anger, then we, people are just like walking around with need, you know, like on needles and you know, walking around glass because they're afraid. And I think that that's what's happened here. And yet God said, I need to discipline you for just a moment and show you that that's not how I want things to operate. And so if we go back now, to looking back to Moses in chapter 2, because this is further advanced from chapter 2 of Exodus in Numbers 20. We see that he hid the evidence. See, when Moses was in control and he took matters into his own hands, he hid the evidence, as we talked about. How often that when we are in control, we try to be in control, and we even sin, and we get angry, and we lose our mind for a minute, and even start to judge critically or whatever, we try to hide the evidence. We don't want anybody to know. We don't want anybody to know our faults and our failures, our insecurities. We're afraid that if people see that, then all of a sudden, we're not going to be able to be a light for Christ. And so he hid the evidence. So he sinned, he hid the evidence, similar to David. He did the same thing. We'll talk about that next week. And so we see that happens as well. And so he, he answered, who made you a prince? So this is what the Hebrews said. After he went in verse 13, and he said to the Hebrews, hey, wait a minute. You guys, don't do that. Don't do that. Please, don't, don't have this problem right now. Don't fall into this trap. Please, do, treat one another well. Treat one another in a way. That, and, there, and right away, what happened was, in verse 13, he says, When he got out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? The word was out. Isn't it interesting when we fail in certain things, when we get angry, we lose a little bit of control and we react, in all of us, that we start to hide it. We don't want anybody to know. And then we try to give advice to everyone else around us. And we think that, okay, I'm going to give advice to everyone else. But what happens is we forget 
that we need advice for ourselves. How often that happens. See, this guy, this Hebrew guy was calling him out and saying, who are you to judge me and be prince over me when you already killed someone? You struck someone and you killed them. You violently removed someone from this earth. And now you're going to tell me to do something well here? No, that's not going to work. And I think Moses made a mess, just like I said last week, Abraham made a mess. How many of us, men and women, who give great advice for other people's marriages, but we just can't seem to find a way to solve our own? How many of us as pastors, and I'm saying for me as pastors, we fall into the same pattern? We want to fix everything, people's marriages, but we have to look at our own marriages and our own families. Often it even says that, I I looked up a statistic, 25% of the U.S. population right now are evangelicals. It says stated that around 17% of Protestants are divorced. Of those 25%, they ignore their own problems in order to fix others. You know, I have a book here that was written in 2008, Dave Early um, one of the church growth guys for over 30 years. He does a lot of life group ministry, and he wrote statistics. And this is back about 10 to 12 years ago. And here are some of the statistics about pastors. It says 40% of pastors have considered leaving the pastorate in the past three months. That was back then. Today, over six, they said six to 7,000 pastors leave the pastorate monthly. 25% of pastors' wives see their husband's work schedule as a source of conflict. 13% of pastors have been divorced. My wife and I know of some pastors that have been divorced. Sad. The clergy has the second highest divorce rate among all professions. 48% of pastors think being in the ministry is hazardous to the family's well-being. I say this to say that I'm putting myself up saying that we can fail as well. Why prayer is so important. Why we need 21 days in prayer and fasting. Why we need to be lifting each other up. Why pastors don't need to be hiding but working with the pastoral teams and elders and saying, hey guys, here we are. One of the things I love about our team so far, Jack, is we're open and honest about things. We can cry together. We can share our hurts. We can share our struggles. I've enjoyed it because we're not perfect, right? (laughs) We're imperfect, but we recognize that we only need Christ to help us. We're not hiding anything as best as we can because we're going to come right out and say it. We need Christ. Amen, brother. And so it's important for us to understand that Moses was faced with the fear of being exposed at this time. He knew he was hiding. And when we know in the next verse, we see that he went into hiding. That was what happened when he took control. He just said, I'm going into hiding. I'm going into hiding. It says here in verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of it, which you don't want Pharaoh to hear of much because he'll have you killed, he sought to kill Moses. That's a true statement. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. And I hear he was a brother, family. He was the grandson of the true Pharaoh. And then the brother who was to become Pharaoh, he was a brother with the one in the plagues. And he stayed in the land of Midian, which was directly east. Actually, as we would understand too, a descendant of Abraham's wife, Keturah, in Genesis 25 too. So the Midianites. So in all this violence, and all this killing, 
and hiding the body and being exposed of his sin and escaping from his life from Pharaoh. The Lord uses this all. Now think about it. God had to prepare, which the Hebrew man accused him of being a prince and a judge. He actually is going to be the prince and the judge. He's going to be delivered. But God had to remove him from Egypt in order to prepare him to come back because he had to come back and be his representative to call out the Egyptians with the plagues. And so we have to understand that the Lord uses all this. And for Moses to have to come back as the judge, he needed that total separation. So the first 40 years he's there in Egypt, then he goes 40 years in Midian because he's found his wife, his father-in-law. He lives there. And then we understand, too, that God was going to use his Egyptian ties to set his people free from the oppression of the Egyptians. God uses Moses. So in all of this, and all these imperfections, and all these struggles and inadequacies and insecurities Moses had, inabilities and failures, the Lord still used him to reach his people and set them free. Isn't that awesome? It's like he heard their cry wanting to rescue them from their oppression. Look at chapter 2 of Exodus, verses 23 through 25. I just want to read that to you. It says, During those many days of the king of Egypt died, the Pharaoh and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for their help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four things God heard, and he remembered. And God saw, and God knew. The beauty of God that even in our imperfections and our struggles in Moses, we don't have to downplay sin, it's sin. But we know that God can rescue us from our sin. And that's what we are as New Testament believers. God has rescued us from our sin. He has set us free from the slave market of sin. Agoriza, the Greek word, it says he's taken us out of it. We no longer have to live or be controlled by it anymore. And understanding that with Moses, even though he was in control, he was often led by this, God still uses and delivers him. And we know that because he had his episode in chapter 3 at the burning bush. And God identifies and introduces himself to Moses. And Moses is being used of God in an awesome way. So here is Moses in control, but now we have to understand too, wouldn't it be cool to know when God was in control? Because see, now when God was in control, we have to look at another episode in Numbers, chapter 12. Because now we find out in Exodus 2, he commits sin and flees. He's being used of God in Exodus, sets his people free with Passover, goes through the Red Sea episode, and now when we come to Numbers in his Kadesh, in the, in the area where he's bringing the people, God identifies Moses as someone different than what we see him in chapter 2, and even in chapter 20 of Numbers. What we see is that God takes care of Moses' matters, because God in control Moses is submissive. With God in control, Moses believing God to take care of him. When God is in control, he takes care of his people. And with us in our lives too, when God is in control, he's taking care of business. See, what's a struggle for us as human beings, even as Christians, is sometimes when we don't see God working the way we want him to, we try to be in control. We take control. We take matters into our own hands. We try to push the envelope. We try to make things happen instead of saying, wait a minute, um, this is his church, this is his word. This is his gospel. This is his truth. God, you do as you please. Help me to not get in your way. 
See, that's what it takes. It takes humility and submission. It's saying, God, it's your church. This is your place where the giving's down. It's your church where things are not going the way they used to go. It's your church. Well, I don't like the way things are happening around. It's your church. We have to believe God that if God's given us a purpose to make disciples, we got to reach those who are far away from God in order to make disciples. And with when we understand is that he took care of Moses, that Moses' problem was God's problem. You know, I, I want to tell you something I'm going to highlight. We have a school here. You guys know that? <laughs> okay, we have a school. Okay, good. Because I know in recent years it's been tough to know that there's been a separation. But I don't want that anymore. Because whatever is a problem in the school is our problem as a church, right? Amen? Amen, right? So if there's a problem with the school, we need to be praying. And if there's a problem with the school, we need to join in and say, what can we do to help? And if there's a problem with the school, hey, we're here because we're a church. So if something needs to be done in our building, we don't want the school to do it. We need to do it. So we have people here who can grab and they have hands and they have hearts and they have a passion to saying, hey, this is the place where God has given us to be good stewards to take care of our children to take care of our students, to take care of our administration, to take care of all these things because God has given us that stewardship to do so. And so as a church, we're one church with a school. And when we do that, then God will take care of our matters. It's not a problem. And so I sat down with our director this week and I said, what's your problem is my problem. We're going to come together and work together. You need something, you t- we'll work together. We got people in our church that can jump in. You need something clean, let's get it done. let's get it done. If there's some areas, then, hey, let's come alongside and help. Let's be a solution to the problem, not add more problems. Because that's when God, there's unity and there's coming together. It's not bickering, complaining, saying, well, that's not my business. That's not my control. No, hey, let's work together as a team. We're better together. And so when we do that, we understand. And that's what God was trying to get Moses to understand. Hey, you're my team now. Submit. I'll take care of you. Your problem's my problem. I'll take care of it. That's why he heard the groanings. God heard. He remembered. He saw. He knew. God took care of it. And same thing here when we look at chapter 12 of Numbers. We see Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Now, some would believe this could have been Zipporah, but others believe that maybe Zipporah passed away and this was his second wife. But Aaron and Miriam, his sister and his brother, didn't like it. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? I mean, come on. He speaks to us too. Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were in the face of the earth. In fact, that word is not really meek in the Hebrew or weak. It's another word that's being used that shows total dependency and devotion to God. So Moses was a man that had total dedication to following God, submitting himself to God, submitting himself to what he is called to do. And then it says, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Now, you know, as a parent, when you ask the kids to all come out to have a family meeting, um, it's not going to be good. (laughs) When daddy has to talk and mommy just has to sit there and the kids have to be spoken to, it's usually some really stern words to remind the children, they're off the rail. To remind the children they lost their mind a little bit. Let's get back into alignment. But that's what God is doing. He's bringing them together. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of a cloud, which is his presence, and stood at the entrance of the tent, the tabernacle, and called Aaron and Miriam. 
and they both came forward. So we know that God took care of Moses. Moses, don't worry about it. They're pushing on you. They're picking on you. Don't worry about it. I tell my kids every time when they were younger, hey, don't take matters into your own hands. If your brother picks on you, you just come tell me and daddy will take care of it. And so why? Because you release yourself from the problem. (laughs) But if you retaliate and try to go back and forth, now you're going to get in the mix of the problem. And so you want to back off. Because what happens is then I step in and I have to take care of it. Mom steps in and takes care of it. And so it's important to understand. And by the way, always, we know when mom says something, mom says it, it's done. I don't have to deal with it because mom says she's an authority as well. And so we have to understand that God takes care of it too. He was working in Moses' life. He was worse. So when God is in control, he's worked in Moses' life and he's working in our lives. Look at verse 6. And he said, hear my words. There is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Now, wait a minute. This is a man who committed murder, who lost control, who hid it like a mobster, who then flees, imperfect in every way, yet God says, Moses is special. Moses is is one of mine. Moses is someone that I have a special relationship with. He calls him a servant. As you got to understand something, in Joshua 14, 24, even God refers to Caleb as his servant because he had a different spirit and followed God fully. And he was a man at 85 years old who still was running like a like a 10-year-old, with energy, with excitement, with passion. He was willing to serve because he knew that he was fully dedicated to God. And see, a servant too, in Isaiah 42 through 53, is what we call the servant motif. And the servant motif, talking about the suffering servant, Jesus himself, who's to come. But this servant, Yahweh's servant, was one whom God would strengthen by his spirit to bring justice, righteousness, and salvation to all the nations. That was the servant that was mentioned who would ultimately be Jesus. And so when you see this word servant, it's important to understand that he is subservient to God's plan. He's humble. He's devoted. He's dedicated. Got important to note, though, Moses failed. He sinned. He had anger issues, control issues. He lost the opportunity to lead God's people into the promised land. But God still considered him the most faithful in his household. Because God desires For us to make God a secret hiding place. Moses found God to be a secret hiding place. See, before he was hiding his sin, he was running away, hiding from the problem. Here he took his problem, his struggle, his sin, and he began to learn that I need to find God to be my secret hiding place. This is a beautiful, beautiful statement here. With him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. The personal relationship, clearly, plainly, in another version it says, and not in riddles, not in parables, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He's telling Miriam, he's telling Aaron. He's like, how dare you talk to them that way? How dare you make that comment? And see, that's, this is Moses, whom even in Deuteronomy 34.10, just finishing the book, it, it comments 
that no prophet ever again rose in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. I mean, that's the same statement. Moses makes that statement writing Deuteronomy. There's a special relationship. There's a place where he was faithful and obedient, failed, imperfect, insecure with inadequacies, control issues, anger issues. Yet God still desired to have a relationship with him. I don't know what that does for you, but it gives me hope. It gives me hope. I hope, it, it, I hope as a believer in Christ, that's hope to you. Because if any one of us thinks that God expects perfection from us, we're not reading the scriptures correctly. And if we're calling out and criticizing everything that happens, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. We got a problem. We got it because we're out in space somewhere alone. And we need help. We can't do it alone. There's nobody perfect. And God doesn't demand it. So don't expect anything of perfection from someone else. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your child, whether it's someone in your neighborhood, whether it's a boss, whether it's someone in this church, whether it's your pastors, it doesn't matter. Don't expect perfection because you're not going to get it. But you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a God who loves you with your imperfections. You're going to get a God who loves you with your anger control issues. You're going to have a God who loves you when you sin. You're going to have a God who receives you and wants to have a relationship with you face to face. So that's why he sent his son. A God who cares, who desires humility from his people. He desires for us to have humility and he doesn't desire for us to be in control. He wants to be in control because he knows best. That's what he desires. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think, says it well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less about yourself. What's clouding your mind? Are you thinking more about yourself and what you can accomplish? Or are you thinking about the other person, what's best for someone else? That's humility. See, Humility is inviting God to use our imperfections to display his perfect work in us. I can't tell you how much that I've been praying the last, I said the last two days, I said, God, it's a daunting task to stand before your people and to speak on your behalf. You are almighty God. Who am I? Moses says that, Lord, who am I? He was so humble. Who am I that I got to go back to Pharaoh? I pray that would be our prayer. God lifts up those who are humble, but lowers those who are proud, who live in their anger, who live in their control. You know, what I love about God is that it's always a comment about faith. In Hebrews, we see about Moses. By faith, Moses, when was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You notice they didn't talk about his murdering. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
I'll tell you, it's just beautiful to see. By faith, he, 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 was, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That's what God desires for us, faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is trusting God to use our imperfection to display his perfect work in us. God is interested in relationship. He's not interested in perfection. God doesn't want us to be in control. God wants to be in control because he knows what's best. And we need to let him do his great work in us. And we need to humble ourselves before him. I want to encourage you this morning. What's clouding your mind? What's stopping you? from understanding what it means to know God and to walk with God. As the worship team is coming up, I just want to pray that God would start to just formulate in you. Don't deny that there's something in you. Don't deny that there could be something of anger or control or struggle or worry or fear. Don't deny it. Just say, God, help me in it. Because when we say, we admit that we need help, we stop all the talk, all the slander, all the gossip, all the stuff that happens, and we deal with it directly and saying, God, I'm imperfect. Help me. Wow, that's a newsflash. People all around the world are imperfect. Of course we are. So why are we, why are we demanding a good that doesn't exist in us? If you think we have to keep doing that, and you think we have to be perfect, I want to encourage you, take that to the Lord. He doesn't expect that from us. But what he does expect from us is obedience and faithfulness. And that's what he expects from us. And faithfulness means that I come before God who needs to change me. So let's take a moment and let's pray. As your heads are bowed, I don't want anybody looking for just a moment. I'm, as the <laughs> pastor here, I just want to see how honest you really are. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, please. How many of you believe you're clouded in your mind right now and dealing with something, either anger, control, fear, worry, just raise your hand. Just slip up your hand. I've got my hand up. Thank you. That's a lot of you. Okay, great. There's great honesty in this church. Awesome. I appreciate that. Now, I want you to just identify which one that is. Just for a moment. 10 seconds. Identify that. Now imagine it. Taking that word. I know it seems strange here, but taking that word whatever that word is, and laying at the feet of Jesus and say, God, I'm imperfect. Change me. Conform me to the image of Christ. Start a work in me. Father, today, we're asking for you to do a work in us, your people. We recognize we're imperfect, but we're grateful you're perfect. And we're grateful you're not demanding that from us anymore. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross.